Thanks, Janice. Uh, before I begin, uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for the chance to come here and, and hear your word. Uh, we pray that we would not only uh, hear your word tonight and hear it clearly uh, from the book of Nehemiah, but we also pray that um, you, would, you would speak speak through it personally to us, that it would impact our, our hearts and uh, our lives. Amen. In Australia, we have uh, some great songs about belonging. At the Sydney 2000 Olympics, Christine Arnu sang this song called My Island Home, which in, in her version was about having come down from an island in the Torres Strait up in the north of Australia to live in a city, but every night she dreams of being back home on that island. To theme this idea of belonging that's been well commercialized as well through song. Most of us here would remember Qantas's famous ad campaign where they brought together a number of Australian children's choirs and flew them to amazing sites around the world and around Australia where they sang the song, I Still Call Australia Home. That was a song originally sung by and written by Peter Allen and it focuses on this idea that no matter where in the world you are, no matter where, where you might be, Australia is here waiting for you. It's where you belong. Someday we'll all be together once more When all of the ships come back to the shore I realize something I've always known I still call Australia home So uh, thank you Sasha for backing me up that first and last time I'm singing up the front Special parting gift for the Prats <laughs> Now even though I knew that Qantas was tugging at my heartstrings in, in the attempt to really manipulate me into thinking that they were this great Australian company the fact is that it worked. I, I used to love hearing that ad come on TV. It made me feel patriotic and nostalgic. Because there's a real sense of belonging there. I've had the, um, the opportunity a couple of times to live overseas. And I've been happy in those places. I've become comfortable in those places. And sometimes there's been things in those other places in the world that I've much preferred to life in Sydney. And yet... Whenever I would fly back to Sydney, I would get this feeling coming in on the aeroplane, this sense that, that this was where I belonged, that I, was, that I was home. No matter how far or how wide I roam, I still call Australia home. These songs are about belonging to a place, belonging to Australia or a particular part of Australia. Now we're going to spend the next five or so weeks looking at the book of Nehemiah as we continue our belong theme of this year. And at the start of this passage, Nehemiah has a clear place where he belongs, and it's also a particular physical location. It's actually Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And that's a bit strange, because Nehemiah belongs in Susa, even though he is an Israelite. 
To understand how it is that Nehemiah is living in Susa, we need some historical context. And I apologize, I know not everyone is into this, but I apologize for jumping around because um, we're going to jump around some Bible passages um, to get it, give us some context. But I'm hopeful that that'll set us up not just for tonight, but also for the next five weeks. So to start our quick history lesson, to get us to, to where we are in Nehemiah, let's go back and look at what happened in the year 587 BC to the kingdom of Judah, as is recorded in 2 Kings 25, 8-12. It says, On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. So in this year, 587 BC, God's kingdom gets wiped off the map. The Assyrians, this other ancient empire, had previously come and, and, and absolutely smashed the northern part of God's people, which was called Israel. And now the Babylonians had come to this, this southern kingdom of Judah. They'd removed that kingdom, ended the monarchy. They destroyed the temple of the Lord. They'd ruined its walls. They took away its leaders. They removed any shred of importance or dignity that Judah may have clung to. And for what it's worth, that event is recorded not just in the Bible here in Kings, but it's also in the Babylonian Chronicles, the, uh, another ancient Babylonian text, and also in the archaeological records of the day. Now, we know that this action was actually God's judgment on his people and its leaders. A number of the prophets in the Old Testament talk about this, including particularly Jeremiah. At the time that that exile is occurring, there are some people that think that the exile into Babylon will be temporary. They're encouraged by false prophets to believe that in a short time the nation will be back to its best because after all they're God's chosen people, they're special. And Jeremiah says, no, no. In Jeremiah 29, he sends a letter to the people who have gone into exile in Babylon. This is what he says. Says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you have encouraged them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, 
declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah says that the kingdom of Judah would be restored, but that most of you who are currently living in Babylon will be dead by the time that happens. So, make a life where you are. And in fact, pray for this kingdom of Babylon where you are living. Now, actually, most of the, pe- most of the, the people of Judah had actually stayed in the land. In, in the, the verses of two kings, they're referred to there as the poorest people. But the Jewish leaders and uh, sort of the important people, they'd all been taken into exile and there was no temple to worship at. So the people left behind were without, sort of like sheep without a shepherd through that time. The structure and leadership that was meant to point them to God had disappeared. So both the people left behind and the exiled population, they're left to wait. Wait for 70 years to pass. And near the end of that period that Jeremiah had talked about, another great historical event happens. And that is that the Babylonian Empire gets overthrown by the Persian Empire under this guy called Cyrus the Great. And there's a new guy in charge with a different attitude to the Jewish people. So at this point, we get to the start of the book of Ezra, where Cyrus grants permission for the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. And he tells them to rebuild the temple and actually gives them back all of the stuff that the Babylonians had taken out of the temple of God and taken with them to Babylon. So they had this new policy, which is basically like, we're going to be nice to the foreign people so that they don't rebel and join our enemies. We're going to give them, give them some good stuff and keep them on side. And so the Israelites return in, in a couple of waves to repopulate the land. And the book of Ezra mentions two of these ways. So the first one goes back to rebuild the temple. And then about 80 years later, this guy after whom the book of Ezra is named, Ezra, he himself goes back to restore the law. All right, so that that brings us to the end of our history lesson and on to the start of our passage today in the book of Nehemiah. And so at the start of chapter one here, we find that Nehemiah, one of the Jewish people, is still here in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, At this point in our story, we have an entirely new emperor sitting on the throne, who is this Artaxerxes character mentioned in chapter two. And actually, we're about 100 years on from when Cyrus had issued that decree saying that all of the Jewish people could return to Jerusalem. The temple has been well and truly rebuilt by this point, and the religious order under Ezra had been reestablished. So the question is, why hasn't Nehemiah returned? Now clearly it's not because he doesn't know that his fellow people had returned. You can see in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, we find him asking about how, how they all are. He knows that they've gone back. So I think something else is going on here. And the book of Nehemiah doesn't tell us exactly why it is that Nehemiah hadn't gone back. But perhaps the easiest answer is that Nehemiah just didn't have a compelling case to go back. You've got to remember, Nehemiah wasn't actually from the land of Judah. He was Jewish, but he'd been born in exile and quite possibly, in fact, probably had never been back to his ancestral home. He wasn't used to living in the Persian Empire. And 
Here he was in Susa, the center of the world at that time. And that was his place. That was where he belonged. Now Artaxerxes, he ruled from, from Egypt up to Turkey, all the way through Central Asia. Huge empire. And Nehemiah was his cupbearer. The guy that was trusted to make sure that the king didn't get poisoned by drinking poison wine. And it was a position that made him a trusted confidant of the king. Whereas Judah, what was Judah? Judah was this beaten up, poor, remote part of the empire. No real significance in the world. Would we really expect Nehemiah to give up his special trusted place in the center of the world, to go back to Jerusalem and live some poor, insignificant life. And at the start of chapter 1 in the book of Nehemiah, it seems like he's fairly comfortable with his position in Susa until there is this catalyst, something changes. He hears from his brother Hanani, who's just come back from Judah, and Hanani's news in verse 3 is bad. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, modern cities don't really have walls. As far as I'm aware of, Sydney has no walls. Nobody seems too bothered about this. But in the ancient world, walls were a big deal. They had benefits. You see... Walls were a defense against the natural world that could, you know, stop floods, wind, weather, wolves. That's a real thing. Uh, and they were a defense against your city's enemies. For any opposing army to take your city, they had to come and lay siege to it. And if you were well supplied, you could last quite a while. But walls weren't just physically important. They were also symbolic. See, walls were a source of pride and a lack of walls was shameful, particularly ones that had been recently destroyed. I mean, such a symbol of your humiliation. Look at those people, they've been crushed. And for the Israelites, walls were also a symbol that God was with them in their efforts. Nehemiah's reaction to the news about the walls tells you how important they were. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is absolutely devastated about Jerusalem's destroyed walls. But why is he so devastated about a place that he's never been and about walls that he's never seen? The answer to that question, I think, is in Nehemiah's response in itself. What he does is he prays and humbles himself before God. Nehemiah doesn't respond to that news in the way you might expect a Persian high-ranking official to respond to news about negative impacts in a city of the empire. He responds as someone who knows that Jerusalem is home to the temple of the Lord and is a witness to the glory of God. So in his response, Nehemiah shows a recognition of his true belonging. He shows that he is one of God's people and solely reliant on God. Even though Nehemiah has grown up away from the land of Judah with no connection to Jerusalem or the temple, he knows that he belongs to God's people. 
Susa might be his physical home, but his place of belonging to God's people is more important than that. Nehemiah knows that action is required to address the situation, but he also knows that God is in control. So the action he takes here is that of prayer. And the way he sets out this prayer is instructive to us as a guide for how God's people can respond to the need for action. You see, in verses 5 and 6, he starts his prayer by acknowledging his place before God, that of a servant before the great and awesome God of heaven. And he doesn't then just jump into his request. Instead, we see that he confesses his sins and those of all the Israelites. So in verse 7, he says, We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And it's interesting that that he would start his prayer that way. Not because it's necessarily unusual. A lot of us might start a prayer like that. But I think it's interesting because Nehemiah is conscious of the reason why this has happened in the first place. Jerusalem was destroyed and the people sent into exile because of their failure to follow the laws God gave Moses and the fact that they didn't give God his due as the great and awesome God of heaven. And so I think Nehemiah here knows that if he's not prepared to acknowledge his place before God and confess his sins and that of the people, why should he expect a different outcome to what had happened in the first place? I think in verse 8, he then, he then quotes scripture that speaks to that point. He says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's a paraphrasing of Deuteronomy 30 where God, through Moses, had foretold that the people would sin and be exiled, but then return. So he's basically saying to God, half of this has happened, but will you finish the job? And at the end of Nehemiah's prayer, he ends with a very simple and non-specific request. He just says, give your servant success today by granting, granting him favor in the presence of this man. There's no real detail in what it is that he, no specificity in what he wants God to do. But I think it says what it needs to do. He's saying the king is just one man under God. He refers to him as a man, not as the king. And he says that, it says that Nehemiah is, is God's humble servant and a recognition that God is in control. At the start of uh, chapter one and again at chapter two, we get we get these specific dates when the actions take place. And that's useful for the historical context of the story, but it's also uh, really useful in showing how Nehemiah prepared for this moment he has in chapter 2 with the king. Because, you see, those dates are four months apart. So by the time Nehemiah has this conversation at the start of chapter 2, he's actually been praying and fasting for four months. Now, later in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to find out that they spend 52 days building the walls of Jerusalem. So what that means is that Nehemiah has spent more than double that time praying just to make the initial request than the amount of time it takes to build the walls itself. But Nehemiah, I think, has been working up to this request for so long because he knows 
that this is a real fearful situation for him. You don't just casually bring your needs to the king of the Persian Empire. If you put yourself briefly in the shoes of Artaxerxes, this is a man who has worries on his mind. He's busy ruling the greatest empire on earth. And when he asks Nehemiah to bring him a glass of wine, he's possibly looking to relax a little bit. He doesn't want his trusted advisors bringing him their personal problems at work. He's got enough problems. He needs some positive people, some clear-eyed advice. And in addition, the concerns of his servants are not really worthy of his consideration. That's before we even think about the specific nature of the request Nehemiah wants to make. See, Artaxerxes is the glorious ruler of the greatest empire on earth. Why wouldn't you be thrilled to be in his presence? Why would you be asking to go to a faraway land far from his side when you have this great position next to him and his wisdom? Nehemiah knows all of that. He knows it's not his place to ask a favor of the king. He knows it's not his place to look sad in front of the king, even if that does get him to prompt a conversation. So he's fearful. I was very much afraid. But he's not so fearful as to be too scared to do what needs to be done. What's his reaction to the fear? His reaction is to pray. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. And then he answers. He's already prayed for four months. But in his moment of fear, he turns to God for strength again to make the request. And God's with him. He's not struck down or removed from the king's presence. He gets to make this request. Now, when he goes and makes the request, it's clear that he has not spent four months praying and, and doing nothing else. He's been praying, but he's also been planning. Now, as Christians, we can somehow some, sometimes have a, a conflicted relationship with the idea of planning. I think we can feel that if we plan too much, we're not really leaving room for God to work in that. And we will say things like, when we work, we work, but when, God, uh, when we pray, God works. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. I do think sometimes we have a reaction against the way the world sees planning, which is to emphasize the importance of planning in everything. In the world, we want to take people and their inconsistency and the natural environment and, and put it into systems and processes and structure and manage the risks and make sure that those things do what we want them to. A number of parables that Jesus tell, talks about the perils of taking that worldly approach. In Luke 12, he tells the parable of what we call the parable of the rich fool, where he talks about this, this man who had these great plans to to bulldoze his current barns and put in these huge barns so that he could store up wealth and then live the rest of his life in, in leisure. And that very night, his life is taken from him. Absent of God, his plans are worthless. Has Nehemiah made the same mistake here? His plans are actually pretty detailed. He knew how long the project should take. He's done a great stakeholder mapping exercise where he's 
worked out who needed to be a consultant and involved in all the decision making. He's thought of everything. In verse 8, he asks, And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. He's thought of a lot of things. But the difference between Nehemiah and the rich fool that Jesus was talking about is that Nehemiah didn't actually put his trust in the plans. As detailed as they might have been, his trust was first and foremost in God and God's plan. And Nehemiah's planning was useful in that it was built, of what, built off what he knew of God's plans and promises already. And a lot of prayer. And because of this, I think Nehemiah's plans are successful. At the end of chapter 2, Artaxerxes decides that Nehemiah belongs in Jerusalem where he should rebuild the walls of the city. So off Nehemiah goes. Tonight we're sadly farewelling Nathan, Jasmine and Jordan from Pennant Hills Baptist Church as they head to Eastwood uh, to, to help with the transition period. And so they might be back from time to time, but their new home is going to be in Eastwood. But Eastwood is not where they are from. It's not their ancestral home. Why would they be going there? There are no choirs singing about their return. Why would they think that that is where they belong? Is it for the excellent restaurants in Eastwood? Is it because they really love Johnny and Joyce? Is it because it's just that little bit closer to where they live? Nathan didn't mention any of those things when he was up here earlier. I think maybe the Pratts are a little bit like Nehemiah. Not in the sense that Eastwood needs its walls rebuilt. More in the sense that they're going to Eastwood not because they belong in Eastwood. They're going there because... They belong to God's people, and that's where God needs them to be right now. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everyone here should be going to Eastwood and follow the example of Nehemiah as they are doing. Uh, God has his own plans and timing, as you can even see from this passage. So what is it that Nehemiah did that gives the Pratts and ourselves an example to follow? He knew that he was one of God's people and that he lived to serve the Lord. He saw that God's people were in strife and that there was a need to stand up for the kingdom. He prayed about what to do for a long time. Then he acted, about, he acted in the knowledge that God was in control of the situation. I think that's not a bad path for us to take in those situations. Most of us are not Israelites like Nehemiah, but thanks to Jesus, we are part of God's people. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for us to have a relationship with God. Some of you may be thinking about going to Eastwood. Some of you may be thinking about having to step up into some of the roles created by that process. And some of you might just be thinking about having to make decisions in other parts of your life. I think if we're following the example of Nehemiah, those decisions come from an understanding that we belong first and foremost in God's family through redemption in Jesus. Then we can look up 
and see where there is a need. Then we can pray. We can plan based on God's plan. Then act in the knowledge that God is in control. Nehemiah belonged at Su- in Susa at the start of our passage. By the end of our passage, he belonged in Jerusalem. But throughout the passage, he belonged to God's people. His sense of belonging was primarily centered on his knowledge of God and his relationship with God. I think that's the challenge for all of us from this passage. Yes, we may call Australia home right now. But before we belong to a place, to a family, to a team, to a company, to whatever it might be, we need to remember that our first place of belonging is the servants of God, redeemed by Jesus to do his work. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Uh, We thank you of the example of his, the way his actions came from uh, his knowledge of his place before you. Lord, we thank you that we do have the gift of having a relationship with you, that we are part of your people and that we can follow Nehemiah's example. Lord, we pray that uh, as a church you would guide us in our plans the way you guided Nehemiah and remind us always that uh, we belong to you rather than to a place or a circumstance. Amen.